0: Section 1 of Brain and Personality. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ava'i in February 2021. Brain and Personality, or The Physical Relations of the Brain to the Mind, by William Hannah Thompson. Chapter 1 Historical Introduction. There is no more interesting subject in science than the physical conditions under which we become thinking beings. Though science is concerned with the knowledge which comes from investigation and experiment in the physical world, yet she cannot evade being questioned about the relations of matter to mind, because the bodily organ of the mind is a thing of physics hence however discussion about mind may be waived as pertaining to the province of metaphysics this cannot be done with that collection of matter which is called the brain in it mind and matter come together and therefore we cannot help asking how much the one is dependent upon the other as far as the mind is concerned it must be admitted that no study of its own operations can give the least inkling on this question, any more than a study of the words of a telegram would reveal how a wire came to conduct them. The passage of thought in the one case, and of words in the other, are equally invisible. But the wire can be followed up until it connects with a mechanism which generates the words for the wire to transmit can any analogous result be expected from an examination of the physical mechanism through which the mind acts the answer is that something of the kind seems to be assured by modern discoveries of definite relations between particular portions of brain matter and thought that there are certain material seats of purely mental functions is the brain is now demonstrated beyond mistake by the fact that when these are physically disorganized their special mental functions are forthwith abolished though all other places in the brain remain intact it is significant however that these discoveries relate in the first instance to the working of the brain of man in distinction from the brains of animals restricted to the brains of animals which they could experiment with physiologists would have been but little able to determine what special relations the brain held to thought but with the brain of man it has proved to be wholly different because unlike animals man possesses a faculty which is directly related to thought the great faculty of speech and the specific anatomical seats of speech have been found in the human brain as certainly as the ticker is found in its place in a telegraph office it should be remarked however that it was reserved for physicians and not for psychologists to light upon these great discoveries by their observing what may be termed the effects of experiments with the human brain which disease makes for them while it has been a distinct gain for psychologists to leave metaphysics and turn their attention to the general physiology of the nervous system the criticism may be made that apart from the human brain the field of psychology is very limited as far as the relation of mind to matter is concerned a single very circumscribed injury to a place in the human brain may teach more on this subject than a survey of the whole domain of nervous physiology in animals this is well illustrated by the fact that the identification of speech centres in the brain ere long led to the discovery again by medical men of the material seats of a whole series of other faculties both sensory and intellectual so that taken together these findings give to the subject of the physical relations of the brain to the mind an entirely new aspect. These discoveries, however, have all been made within the lifetime of our own generation. On that account they are scarcely known to the general public, and their important bearing on the old question of matter and mind is even less appreciated few persons are aware how slow the progress of knowledge has been of the actual physical relations of the mind to the body and hence an historical review of that progress would seem to be a fitting introduction to our present discussion thus the word brain does not once occur in the bible for the good reason that during the centuries in which its different books were written scarcely any one in the world suspected that this most silent and secluded of organs had anything to do with thought or feeling the earliest identification of the mind with a bodily organ we find among the babylonians who located it in the liver their priests therefore elaborated a great system of omens based upon the appearances of this organ in the animals offered up for sacrifice with the hebrews on the other hand the heart was the chief seat of the soul while the mind was located in the kidneys and all tender emotions in the bowels thus one psalmist says that his reins instruct him in the right seasons and another that the lord trieth the heart and the kidneys the prophet jeremiah denounces the hypocrites of his day who had the lord in their mouths but not in their kidneys in keeping with similar expressions in the old testament saint paul speaks of bowels of mercies a survival of these conceptions is found in our english phrase two fellows of the same kidney nor for a long time were the ideas of the greeks on this subject much nearer the mark it is true that plato assigns the supreme seat of the mind to the brain but how purely speculative were his views is illustrated by the following quotation the creation of bones and flesh was in this wise the foundation of these is the marrow which binds together body and soul and the marrow is made out of such of the primary triangles as are adapted by their perfection to produce all the four elements these god took and mingled them in due proportion making as many kinds of marrow as there were to be hereafter kinds of souls the receptacle of the divine soul he made round and called that portion of the marrow brain intending that the vessel containing this substance should be the head the bones were formed by sifting pure earth and wetting it with marrow It was then thrust alternately into fire and water and thus rendered insoluble by either as the bone was brittle and liable to mortify and destroy the marrow by too great rigidity he contrived sinews and flesh the first to give plasticity the second to guard against heat and cold having this in view the creator mingled earth with water and mixed with them a ferment with acid and salt, so as to form pulpy flesh, etc. It is evident that Plato in this confounded the substance of the brain and of the spinal cord with the marrow of the bones, and thus got his conception of marrow as the foundation of the living body. But his younger contemporary, Aristotle, circa B.C. 335, who was the foremost physiologist of his day and himself the son of a physician scouted all this vital forego of plato's and as plato evolved it all out of his own head without troubling himself about facts he had little difficulty in doing so aristotle examined the brain for himself and came to the conclusion that its function had nothing to do with mind but that it was a cool organ which properly refrigerated the blood for the heart we may tempted to smile now at this conclusion but aristotle was no mere theorist and he reasoned according to a sound scientific method from facts as he knew them we must put ourselves in his place with nothing to go by more than certain patent facts of life the explanation of which by other facts was then unknown to him he found the brain an apparently insensible and inexcitable organ while the heart was extremely excitable he therefore only followed his great predecessor hippocrates the father of medicine who recognizing how quickly consciousness is abolished by loss of blood or deranged by blood poisons or by the heated blood of fevers inferred that the conscious mind resided in the blood and hence that the heart as the central organ of the circulation was itself the chief seat of the soul another cause of misunderstanding was that as the arteries are found empty after death owing to their contractile walls expelling the blood from them it was concluded that these vessels carried air or ethereal spirits from the heart to the rest of the body we shall see that nothing so contributed to delay for centuries all progress as this mistake by its suggesting the existence and all-pervading power of vital spirits supported by such great names as hippocrates and aristotle these beliefs held sway for fully five centuries along with speculations how from the blood the different organs of the body such as the stomach liver spleen intestines etc elaborated each its share of the various appetites or emotions meanwhile in this wilderness of greek speculation a voice had been crying in vain the true doctrine about the brain long before plato or any of the rest Alcmaon, the pythagorean of crotona who lived about bc 500 a man who was both an anatomist and an experimental physiologist taught that the brain was the sole seat of the mind and the source of feeling and of movement and that at the brain arrived all sensation by means of the nerves It is evident that he was led to do this by noting that severing the optic nerves leading from the eyes to the brain produced total blindness. Unfortunately, he called the nerves tendons, a term which, with its erroneous suggestions, continued to be applied to them for two thousand years, until finally the great Descartes demonstrated the essential difference between tendons and nerves even shakespeare when he spoke of nerves meant sinews but whether from Alcmaeon's colonial origin or because he was far in advance of his time both plato and aristotle who must have read his works alluded to them contemptuously as somebody's views aristotle indeed taught that the spinal cord had nothing in common with the brain and evidently paid little attention to its tendons or nerves. In progress of time, a great school of anatomists and experimental physiologists arose in Alexandria, of whom Herophilus, circa b. c. three hundred, and his contemporary, Erastistratus, were the chief, who carefully dissected the brain and traced to it the nerves of the special senses, as Alcmaeon had done. They went so far as to divide the nerves into those of sensation and of motion, though they were still hampered by Alcmaon's term tendon, and apparently they could not wholly shake off the authority of Aristotle as to the functions of the brain. They prepared the way, however, for Galen circa a d one hundred sixty, to whom we are chiefly indebted for the overthrow of Aristotle's doctrine about the brain and the demonstration of its exclusive title as the seat of thought and feeling to this great physician belongs the distinction of establishing this doctrine for all time a contemporary of his aretaeus of cappadocia circa a d one hundred seventy advanced so far as to recognize correctly that the brain dominated the muscular movements of the body by nerves which originating in the brain crossed their tracts below in the form of the letter x so that injuries in one hemisphere of the brain paralyzed the muscles of the opposite side of the body while if they occurred in the spinal cord below the medulla the resulting paralysis was on the same side with the injury but even areteus held that the seat of the soul was in the heart After Galen, the progress of discovery of the true functions of the brain was extraordinarily slow. From the middle of the second century AD to the middle of the nineteenth century, or 1700 years, the actual gains in this knowledge were relatively most insignificant compared with the splendid advances in astronomy, geography, physical science, chemistry, and geology. It would seem as if, to know thyself scientifically rather than metaphysically instead of being the first was destined to be among the latest of human achievements one great cause for this backwardness was the persistent sway of teleology in all questions about life men were ever trying to explain the reasons of things by the imagined purposes of things and to find the causes in the purposes thus we have seen that plato's whole physiology originated in what he fancied the creator and the gods intended when they made this or that part of the living body and all the long way down the centuries we meet with examples of reasoning on these subjects not unlike that of the philosopher who admired the benevolent wisdom of providence in arranging that large rivers should flow past large towns one of the greatest of these hindrances was the conception of the brain as a secreting gland which dates from hippocrates and continues down to carl vogt cabanis and other writers in the earlier years of the nineteenth century who maintained that the brain secreted thought just as the liver secretes bile hippocrates writes that the brain resembles a gland being white and soft like glands it discharges the same glandular offices as regards the head it reads the head of its humidity and returns to the extremities the surplus of its flux with this postulate that it is a gland one authority after another attempted to represent the brain's secretion as a kind of subtle fluid termed animal spirits which permeated the body through the blood. Thus Descartes taught that the left ventricle of the heart separated these animal spirits, which had been generated in the brain, and distilled them out of the blood into a very living and very pure flame, and then distributed them through the arteries. These animal spirits, therefore, were readily made to account for everything, normal and abnormal hence it was due to noxious vapours and humours that every variety of bodily disorder took its rise to illustrate how effectually such conceptions served to block all progress in the science of life we may quote one instance from a ponderous volume in my library with the date sixteen eighteen on physiology and anatomy by Hilkia crook physician and professor on anatomy and Chirurgery to his majesty james i speaking of the origin and growth of hair he says the immediate matter of the hairs is a sooty thick and earthy vapor which in the time of the third concoction distillation is elevated by the strength of the action of natural heat and passeth through the pores of the skin which heat excisiateth or dryeth this moisture of these sooty and thick vapours for the vapour being thick in his passage leaveth some part of itself to wit the grossest in the very outlet where it is impacted by a succeeding vapour arising where the former did is protruded and thrust forward so that they are wrought together in one body the straightness of the passages of the skin where through the matter of the hairs is avoided, formeth them into a small roundness even as a wire receeth that proportion whereof the whole is where through it is drawn one great office of the hairs of the head therefore crook perceived to be to lead off the vapours which otherwise would choke and make smoky the brain though how hopelessly choked the brains of all bald heads hence would be he does not mention crook's illustrious contemporary lord bacon held that the blood did not distend the heart nor cause it to beat but that was done by its contained spirits even harvey's discovery of the circulation of the blood did not dislodge these pure nonentities from the brain for we find as late as eighteen twenty four dr j mason Good, in his study of medicine mentioning the fact that the brain being a gland the nervous power or energy issues from it as a fluid of a peculiar kind and is so distributed by its nerves it was the introduction of the microscope into the investigation of nervous tissues Which first really exercised the animal spirits from the medical world. Their objective existence, in fact, had often been called in question before, but it was difficult to banish these airy creations altogether until some solid physical facts could be found which would dispose of them. Without the microscope, we could never have known what every living texture really is, nor after what fashion it is constructed with the microscope ehrenberg made in eighteen thirty three the first discovery of a nerve cell in a spinal ganglion and four years later purkinje demonstrated that the gray matter of the cerebrum and of the cerebellum is made up of nervous cells and their fibers this was followed in the next year by the publication of the great work of schleiden and schwann in which they proved that all vegetable and animal tissues are made up of cells and the products of cells the intimate structure of all tissues and organs was thus revealed and each was found to be perfectly characteristic of its kind whether bony tendinous glandular muscular nervous etc nervous tissue especially is very peculiar and unlike anything else in the body and least of all like glandular tissue the brain therefore was thus shown to be no more a gland than a hand or foot is and that it never secretes anything the brain instead is a special and distinct organ connecting with nothing but nerves acting and acted upon only through nerves or nervous masses called ganglia which are distributed through the body it was not long before this conception of the brain as a separate mechanism in us constructed after its own pattern began to give rise to a new batch of theories gall to whom brain anatomy owes a good deal particularly in the tracing of the course of the brain fibres down through the medulla oblongata regarding the brain as one organ conceived that its convolutions served to mark it off into so many compartments each with its distinctive mental functions which he proceeded to identify he thus made out a list of twenty-four brain localities possessed with special intellectual or moral attributes and which his pupil spurzheim increased to thirty-eight now as all individuals have their personal peculiarities of mind and of disposition these in turn could be explained by the development of their corresponding convolutions thus a mathematician would leave a highly developed mathematical convolution and a combative man would possess his brain-seat of combativeness etc this so-called science of phrenology had great vogue for a time owing to its further assumption that the outer contour of the head corresponded to the arrangements of the convolutions within and thus afforded a ready physical basis for estimating what manner of man or woman each person was so popular became this supposed scientific standard of individuality that i once heard a prominent clergyman remark that before he addressed a young man about his soul He wished he could be allowed to feel his bumps but as in the case of animal spirits so phrenology had to disappear before facts it was shown that gall and his followers did not study a sufficient number of brains because on the one hand their mathematical convolutions were found as largely developed in the brains of paupers dying in hospitals as in the few mathematicians whose brains Gall had investigated, while the brains of some eminent men had no specially developed convolutions where they ought to have had them. On the other hand, while the inner table of the skull corresponds in a general way with the sub adjacent convolutions, it does not keep shape with any special convolution whatever while as respects the outer table of the skull there may be no correspondence at all. Phrenology, therefore, gradually became the exclusive property of popular lecturers who illustrated its doctrines with plates of variously labelled heads. The period between 1845 and 1860 was marked by notable advances, not only in general physiology, but also in the physiology of the brain and of the nervous system the great principle of reflex action that is of the afferent and efferent elements in all nervous processes was established and many of the amazingly intricate paths of nerve fibers in the spinal cord and in the brain were traced out france at that time took the lead in all branches of medical science and the names of majondi florent gratiolet and others like them will always rank high in the annals of neurology it is not easy at this day to appreciate what a paramount influence was exerted in the medical world by this school of paris whose lecture-rooms were crowded by students from all countries but partly as a reaction from the doctrines of phrenology all separate localization of function in the brain was strongly denied while the opposite and no less erroneous teaching was promulgated that the brain always acts as a whole the cerebral convolutions were regarded as the sensorium commune and as one of them expressed it any specific vibration initiated in each kind of sensory nerve thrills throughout the whole or greater part of the mass of the brain. Thus medical opinion seemed to settle down to the conclusion that our two brain hemispheres correspond to our two lungs, in the respect that every part discharges the same functions with the rest. But a great change was impending. On April 14, 1861, an eminent French hospital surgeon, paul broca read a paper before the societe d'anthropologie of paris in which he adduced evidences to prove that there is a definite locality in the brain which is the sole seat of articulate speech found in a limited area in the lower and posterior part of the convolution called the third frontal and which is now named broca's convolution This fact, of course, could only be demonstrated by injuries to that part in the human subject, and Broca showed, by citing a number of post-mortem examinations of persons dying after paralysis of the right side of the body, usually due to apoplexy, and who with the onset of the paralysis lost the power of utterance, that in all such cases damage to that locality was demonstrable as this statement seemed at first to be a reversion to the tenets of phrenology it gave rise to so much heated discussion and denial that it was not until about eighteen sixty five that it began to be generally admitted what chiefly led to its final acceptance was the further discovery that the two other elements of human speech besides articulate utterance also have each their distinct and separate brain localities one place being found for the words we receive through the ear damage to which place causes word deafness even though there be no deafness to other sounds than words and secondly one place for words received through the eye in reading damage to which causes the subject at once to become wholly illiterate though he may see and recognize all other objects of sight except words as well as ever The demonstration of these anatomical bases of the faculty of speech soon led to careful experimental investigation of the brain in animals for other seats of distinct functions, constituting what is now termed cerebral localization, and to a comparison of the results achieved with the effects of injury or of disease in the brain of men by eighteen seventy through the labors of both experimental physiologists and practicing physicians such as hitzig ferrier munch luciani charcot and others it was shown that each of the special senses has its anatomical seat in the brain and in addition to that in a centrally placed zone are to be found the seats governing the voluntary movements of the muscles of the body so that each muscle, or group of muscles, can be made to contract by excitation of the corresponding locality in the cortex or surface of the brain. These discoveries were great enough of themselves, but they are relatively of secondary importance compared with those which followed and which will cause the name of Broca, as yet scarcely known by the general public, to rank in the history of science along with the names of copernicus and of isaac newton the anatomical seats of the senses and those of muscular movements are found equally in both hemispheres of the brain and their functions as such are doubtless congenital it was thus natural to infer as the brain is a double organ like our two eyes and our two ears each hemisphere being the duplicate of the other that both brains would equally participate in all brain work but a most unexpected fact and one of far-reaching significance was soon demonstrated namely that the anatomical seats of the faculty of speech are found only in one of the two hemispheres thus if the Broca convolution which is the seat of articulate speech be damaged in a person after middle life the loss is usually irremediable so that he can speak no longer though the same convolution in the other hemisphere be wholly intact the same is true as regards word deafness or word blindness from injury of their respective places for the corresponding localities in the other hemisphere though not hurt at all nevertheless are entirely word-deaf and word-blind simply because they never had anything to do with speech but here again another new element in the problem presented itself which proved that the endowment of one hemisphere with the great gift of speech was not owing to any original or special fitness of that hemisphere for such a function but solely because it was the hemisphere related to the most used hand in childhood in all right-handed persons it is in the left brain that the speech centers are located while in left-handed persons they are found exclusively in the right brain two conclusions inevitably follow upon these facts first that brain matter as such does not originate speech for then both hemispheres would have their speech-centres and second that either of the hemispheres is equally good for speech if something begins early enough in life to use it for that purpose that something is the most commonly used hand by the human child at the time when it is learning everything for self-education always begins in our race with the stretching forth of the hand as any one may note in the first purposive actions of an infant the hand which it then most used to learn by determined which of its two brain hemispheres should know speech and which hemisphere should remain wordless and therefore thoughtless for life this latter statement that thought as such is a function only of the hemisphere connected with the faculty of speech was decisively demonstrated by the next revelation which followed upon broca's fruitful discovery without any help from metaphysics and upon a much surer basis than any metaphysical theories it was simply found as a physical fact that our mental faculties as such are quite distinct from the elementary functions of sensation and of motion these latter are congenital but our ability to recognize, and therefore to know what the particular objects or meanings be of what our senses report, is not congenital, but as much acquired by us as our speech is acquired and not congenital. Because, connected with the original anatomical seats of sight and of hearing, were found certain physical anatomical areas of brain matter injury of which abolished all power to recognize what the eye sees or the ear hears in the visual area is a place which if damaged renders the person unable to recognize members of his own family though he see them and in the auditory area are places one of which if hurt causes the person to be no longer able to know his most familiar tunes when he hears them while by injury in another spot he loses all power of distinguishing sounds in general so that he cannot tell the bark of a dog from the song of a bird because they are alike only noises to him and here again these important brain areas in us interpreting what sights or sounds mean are found only in the left hemisphere of the right-handed and in the right hemisphere of the left-handed In other words in the hemisphere in which the seats of the faculty of speech are located the decisive bearing of these pure matters of fact upon our whole discussion of the physical relations of the brain to the mind and to the personality is plain enough as none of these wonderful mental faculties including that of speech were connected with brain matter at birth but were created afterwards it follows that they were created by the individual himself anatomically modifying his own brain that brain-matter did not itself organize these physical areas of mental function is shown by their entire absence from the convolutions of the wordless hemisphere as these physical relations of the brain to the mind are to be fully discussed in our succeeding chapters We could have preferred not to have alluded to them so far in advance, and we have done so now only for this reason. Many persons may imagine that such a theme must involve a discussion of what the mind is, and therefore enter upon the wide domain of metaphysics. We propose to avoid anything of the kind, as our subject deals primarily with a thing of physics, namely the brain. But the main facts about the structure and working of the brain are of such recent discovery that they scarcely yet have become generally known, at least in comparison with the latest discoveries in the physical sciences. Regarded, however, simply as matters of knowledge, these new additions to our information about the one organ in us which is related to thought can be second to none in interest and importance. End of section 1